Hey there, welcome back to the listener's commentary on the New Testament. We are studying the letter of 2 Peter. But before we jump into the material for the section, we have some celebrating that we need to do. The listener's commentary has just turned two years old this week. And in the course of two years, it's gone obviously from not getting any downloads to now we have a total of over 100,000 downloads in two years. And I think that's worth celebrating. And so super excited about that, excited to share that with you. So here's what I want to do to celebrate the two-year birthday party of the listener's commentary. I want to give anyone who sets up a recurring monthly donation to support my online Bible teaching ministry. I want to give you free access to the Listener's Commentary Study Hub. So if you go to listenerscommentary.com, the website for the commentary, listenerscommentary.com, right at the top, on the right-hand side, there's a button that says Donate Now. That'll take you to a PayPal donation uh, portal where you can... Put in an amount you want to donate, do whatever amount you want, Uh, click the little box that says make this a recurring donation, and that'll set up a a recurring monthly donation through my overseeing kind of ministry group called World Family Mission. This will um, put that right into my account with them. And, And then what I will do is I will send you a thank you note with a link to where you can sign up for the study hub. Now, this is not the normal way people sign up for the study hub. So that thank you note is not going to be automated, uh, which means you're not going to get it immediately. So just be patient with that. I personally will actually send you a thank you note once I get the report uh, of who has set up recurring uh, donations. And um, I will send that note and I will be sure to include a link to where you can set up a, an account and a login for the Study Hub, and you can access the uh, charts, the online courses, the uh, word studies, the uh, background pictures and data, and everything that's inside the Study Hub. So um, that's just a way to say, let's celebrate what God is doing through the listener's commentary. It's been a great two years, a lot of work, ton of work, and yet people all around the world are being impacted by the listener's commentary. So if you have been impacted by the commentary in any way, if you've been thinking about starting to donate to this ministry, this is a great time to do it because your donation will give you access to the study hub. And if you're already a donor and you don't have access to the study hub, I don't want to leave you out either. So shoot me an email um, and I will send you that link as well. All right. Okay. With that, let's jump into 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1 through 10a, the first half of verse 10. All right. 2 Peter 2, 1 through 10a. And in this section, it becomes clear why the original readers need to be reminded about the importance of pursuing a godly life. In chapter 1, Peter urged them to make every effort to put on Christian character. He's emphasized how important that is, and that's why he's reminding them of all of this in view of his impending death. That's the purpose for his writing, is to remind them of this. He's assured them of the reliability and trustworthiness of his teaching and the apostles' teaching, He's also assured them that the Old Testament words that culminated in Jesus, uh, those are reliable as well. Now it becomes clear 
why he said everything he said in chapter 1. And the reason for that is because there are some false teachers that are spreading some pretty twisted and destructive theology among these churches, these Christians to whom Peter is writing. The specific connection between the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2 is the idea of prophecy. Remember, at the end of chapter 1, Peter talked about how there is no prophecy of Scripture that's just a, a means of the prophet making up his own stuff, his own thinking, right? Um, that is, he's been talking about the reliability of the Old Testament prophetic teaching. Well, now he picks up with, yes, that's trustworthy, but while those prophets and those teachers were doing their thing, there were also false prophets in their day too, and that leads then into the transition to talk about the false teachers of Peter's day that is really assaulting the churches to whom he's writing to. So that's that's the context. That's where we're at in the letter of 2 Peter. So 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1 begins like this, but... False prophets also appeared among the people. So he's talked about the reliability of prophetic scripture and how that came about by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. At the end of chapter one, he said that. Now he says, but even when that was happening and there were true prophets whom God really did send and who God really did authorize to speak, there were also others who claimed to speak for God, but indeed did not. They were false prophets. And when you read the Old Testament, you will find examples of and warnings about false prophets all over the place. Uh, false prophets are people who claim to speak for God, but don't. God did not send them. God did not authorize them. And their messages aren't true. And you could find those throughout uh, places in Deuteronomy, like Deuteronomy 13. You could find it in Kings, like 1 Kings 22. You can find it uh, in Jeremiah and Isaiah. All over the Old Testament, there are warnings about and examples of false prophets. And so that's what Peter means in verse 1 when he says, now, false prophets also appeared among the people. So there were true prophets. There were also false prophets. And then that leads into the transition to the false teachers of Peter's own day. And so after he says there were false prophets among the people, he says, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. So the flow is there were false prophets among the true prophets in the Old Testament time period. And guess what? There are false teachers among the true teachers in Peter's day and the Christians to whom he is writing. Notice, however, the way it's worded is it's worded with a plural tense, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce, right? So here the, uh, the, the future tense, will, there in verse 1. And that really is consistent for the first three verses of chapter 2 where he uses the future tense. But here's the thing. Even though in these first three verses it's stated in the future tense, the rest of the paragraph in chapter 2 makes it clear that such false teachers are already active in the churches. So it seems like the future tense here is the byproduct of comparing the false teachers of their day with the false prophets of the Old Testament time period. And so as a result, what was true back then will also be true in their day and in ours. And that's the reason you end up with it 
for the first little bit, sounding like it's future tense. And notice what Peter says then about these false teachers that he says they're going to come. They're going to come. And in fact, they're already here. What does he say about them here in this verse? Well, he says um, that they will secretly introduce destructive heresies. So notice, first off, their methods are deceitful and conniving. They secretly introduce these things. Um, And the word introduce could be neutral, just to introduce, to bring something in. But in view of the following context and how kind of cunning they are and how destructive they are, it's clear that they're not just kind of nicely and neutrally introducing new thoughts or ideas. They're cunning about it. They're deceptive about it. So that's why the translators have added this word secretly. They kind of sneakily introduce destructive heresies. You can uh, you could flip over if you want to uh, uh, Galatians chapter 2 verse 4 that uses a, a this same word, slightly different form of it, but the same word to talk about how they they kind of secretly brought in false ideas in the church there in Galatia as well. It's the same idea here that they they kind of come in sneakily on the on the down low on the sly and introduce these destructive heresies. And so their methods are conniving. And then the the other thing is their teaching is poison. They they bring in destructive heresies. The word heresy in Peter's day originally just referred to a faction or a school of thought, like to there's this particular school of thought, there's that school of thought. So Peter adds this adjective destructive to it to clarify that it's not just another harmless group or another way of thinking about things. It's destructive, that it's a destructive school of thought. It's a destructive pattern of thinking. And so these false teachers secretly introduce destructive heresies. In fact, they go so far, Peter says, as to deny the master, that is Jesus, who bought them. In other words, they, they're they insiders. They're part of the church. They're, they're people who claim to be Christians. And, and maybe in some ways they kind of look like Christians and sound like Christians, but by their teaching and by their actions, they actually deny Jesus himself. They deny the master who bought them. And from the descriptions that follow, it's clear that the main way they do this is by living immoral lives and teaching that that's okay and inviting then others who are in the church to do the same. Oh, it doesn't matter how you live your life. You can live however you want because there's plenty of grace and God will forgive you. So do what you want. That's how they're living and that's what they're teaching. And Peter says that guarantees that they will be condemned. Now, Peter goes on in verse 2 to say that they're good at this, that they're persuasive, um, that he begins to describe the impact of their teaching. And look what he says in verse 2. He says, And many will follow their indecent behavior, and because of them, the way of truth will be maligned. That phrase, indecent behavior, the word translated indecent is the word that just means sensuality, often used in reference to uh, sexually illicit, sexually improper behavior. But it was broader than that for, for just living for whatever makes you feel good, living for pleasure, living for your five senses, living for what makes you feel good. So these false teachers live this way. That's their manner of life. And they teach other people that this is the way they should live too. And as a result of that, Peter says, that the way of truth 
will be maligned. Jesus, remember, called himself the way, the truth, and the life. The followers of Jesus were often called in the book of Acts, the way. You can see that, for example, in Acts chapter 9, verse 2, or 19.9, or uh, Acts 22.4. The, the early church there, the Christians, were the way. And the idea is of a road or a path, like a pathway. And here, in this verse, it's the pathway of truth. And so what Peter is saying is the pathway of Jesus is the pathway of truth. And as a result of these false teachers' behavior and teaching, many people are going to be led astray with the result that the pathway of Jesus, the pathway of truth, is going to be maligned. It's going to be spoken against and dismissed as something that's worthless and not worth listening to or following. Then Peter goes on in verse 3, continuing to describe their impact. He says, And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. And so Peter says they're driven by greed. And in greed, they're going to exploit you. They're going to, they're going to work you over with false words, literally fabricated words. They're making stuff up. They're making up their own ideas. It's not the truth. It's fabricated stuff, their own ideas, their own thoughts. And they're using it to exploit uh, Christians who don't know better or who aren't grounded well yet or, her, or who are easily susceptible to their kind of teaching. And Peter restates that their destiny is judgment. Just because their judgment hasn't happened yet doesn't mean it's idle, like sitting still, not you know, not really going to happen, or that their destruction is asleep. It's actually heading their way. They are destined for destruction and for judgment. Now, in the next handful of verses, what Peter does is he's going to give a, a series of three examples, and then he's going to draw out the point or the implications from the examples. And so the examples from the Old Testament show up in verses 4 through 8. So you get three Old Testament examples in verses 4 through 8. And then in verses 9 and 10, Peter states the point of the examples. And the pattern for this is, if this, then that. If God did this, and if God did this, and if God did this, then he's going to do this for you as well. That's the pattern of this. So we get three Old Testament examples, and then we get the implication or the point of those examples in the next handful of verses. And the three Old Testament examples that Peter gives are the example of rebellious spiritual beings, the example of sinful people in Noah's day, and we get the example of Sodom and Gomorrah. Those are the three Old Testament examples. Here's the way Peter says it. Verse 4, the first example are rebellious spiritual beings. It says this, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness held for judgment. So remember, we're going to get this long sentence. It's going to be this series of three examples, and we'll finally get the then that goes along with the if uh, that we, we start here in verse 4. So for if God did this, and if God did that, right? So here we get the first if. If God did not spare angels when they sinned. Uh, what is this referring to? Well, obviously it's not 100% clear because it's a very brief phrase. 
but many people see a reference to Genesis chapter 6 here. Partly because of the parallel with Jude. Jude seems to be, maybe he adds a few more details that makes it maybe a little more clear that uh, Jude and Peter are alluding to Genesis chapter 6. Here's what happened in Genesis 6. Genesis 6 tells us really kind of um, short, brief, seemingly odd story about sons of God, which in the Old Testament is often a reference to angels or spiritual beings who... Um, went to daughters of men and took them for themselves and had sexual relations with them. That's what Genesis 6 seems to be talking about. And Peter may be alluding to that, although what he says here is very brief. Jude, when he describes this in his version of what Peter says here, Jude verse 6 says, And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their proper abode. That's the way Jude puts it, and that idea of abandoning their proper abode, remaining in their proper place. And it seems to be an allusion to Genesis 6, although it's not clear. Why do people think it's an allusion to Genesis 6? Well, because according to Jewish tradition that was well known in the time period of both Peter and Jude, um, Jewish tradition recorded in books like First Enoch and Jubilees, those sons of God in Genesis 6 were angels, and they sinned by taking human women for themselves. That was a well-known, well-established Jewish tradition. That was a Jewish way of understanding what's going on in Genesis 6. And so uh, many people, many scholars see both Peter and Jude here alluding to that tradition, although obviously they're very generic and very brief about it and don't make tons out of it, except to say that uh, God punished them. And that's Peter's point here. Notice he says, uh, if God didn't spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell. And the word that's translated hell in this version is not the normal word for hell, Gehenna in um, Greek. Hell typically is connected with final judgment. Uh, the word translated hell here is actually the word Tartarus, uh, which is a word that Peter's Gentile readers would well understand because it was used in some Gentile um, kind of myths and legends, particularly about um, beings that were sort of like the offsprings, like human offsprings of the gods. And so again, it would fit with that, that Genesis 6 understanding that we see in Jewish tradition. And so he uses this word Tartarus, which just refers to the underworld. What Peter is really saying is, um, that these spiritual beings, these angels who sinned at whatever reference he's talking about, God actually cast them already into the underworld where they are bound and committed to pits of darkness and they're held there waiting for final judgment. That's what Peter says. So God did that. He actually has imprisoned spiritual beings. He's that powerful. He's that capable. He can, in, he can imprison spiritual beings, angels, who went astray and did wrong. Now, the next example that Peter gives is the example of Noah, which 
If Peter is alluding to the Genesis 6 account in the brief mention of the angels who sinned, that makes sense that we would go to Noah because Noah flows right out of that. Noah, be, The story of Noah begins in Genesis 6 and goes on for the next couple, couple chapters in the book of Genesis. So it's possible that that's kind of the connection here. Notice what he says. We're still with the if side of the statement. And so he says, and, and if God did not spare the ancient world but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So here we get the second example, Noah. And notice that he says there's judgment for the ancient world. He didn't spare them. Judgment for the ancient world by the flood, but protected Noah and his family, the seven others. Um, well, that, that's the point. God knows how to do this. That's where we're going to go with this. And notice how Noah is described here in verse 5. He's described as a preacher of righteousness, which is an interesting description because the Genesis account doesn't mention Noah specifically preaching. Certainly by building the ark, certainly by building the ark in faith with what God told him, Noah is communicating a message to the surrounding people. But once again, Jewish tradition kind of filled in the gaps and describes Noah as explaining why he's building the ark. And thus he's a preacher of righteousness in that regard. And that's probably where this phrase preacher of righteousness comes from. Um, and then we get the third example, which is the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah and the rescue of Lot, which sets then up the point Peter's going to draw from these three examples in verses 9 and 10. So here's what he says about uh, Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah. He says in verse 6, and if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, completely destroying them, in other words, having made of them an example of what is coming for the ungodly. So the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is told in Genesis chapter 19. And they, as Peter says here, are an example of the destruction that lies ahead for the ungodly. And so uh, they were destroyed. They were completely reduced to ashes. They are made an, an example, a pattern of what is lying ahead for people who refuse to acknowledge God and obey him. And Peter includes then in verse 7, um, the example of the rescue of Lot. So the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah plus the rescue of righteous Lot. So verse 7 says, And if he rescued righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the perverted conduct of unscrupulous people, and then kind of a parenthetical note in verse 8, For by what he saw and heard that righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. And so Peter kind of fleshes that out for us a little bit. And so he's talking primarily here, though, about the rescue of Lot. Uh, God judged Sodom and Gomorrah, but he rescued Lot. And then he notice what he says about Lot. Lot was oppressed by the perverted conduct of unscrupulous people. Unscrupulous just means unprincipled or lawless. And the word translated perverted there in verse 7 is actually the same word that's translated indecent up above in verse 2. It's the word for sensuality, um, which obviously gets at uh, sexual sensuality. And then just beyond that, living for your five senses. And the word conduct here in verse 7 has to do with their, their whole manner of life. So the people in Sodom and Gomorrah, Peter is saying, are so lawless and so unruly that their whole way of life is driven by sex and whatever feels good. And so 
That's Lot, and he's living among them, and Peter describes him as a righteous man, righteous Lot, with a righteous soul, right? Like, um, he repeats Lot's righteousness three times. He's righteous Lot, he's a righteous man, he had a righteous soul, and living among them, he says in verse 8, and seeing their lawlessness, hearing about their deeds, just tormented righteous Lot, Peter says. And I suspect that Peter threw in that kind of reflection and meditation on Lot's experience in verse 8 to really provide a point of connection with his readers. Just like Lot was suffering by living among a pagan people who are living in such kind of sensual sorts of ways, Peter's readers are having the same experience. They too live among godless people. They see and hear about their godless ways of life and their unrighteousness, and they're deeply disturbed by it. So it provides a point of contact with Peter's readers. So what we see from the examples, the three examples that Peter's provided, is that God condemns the ungodly, but protects and rescues the righteous. That's the pattern that Peter has drawn our attention to from these examples. So now he's going to apply that pattern, this truth, to his readers. So keep the flow of the sentence in mind. If God did this, and if God did this, and if God did this, now in verse 9, we get the second half of the thought. We get the then. So look at verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from a trial and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. So here's the lesson Peter is teaching. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly and to judge the wicked. Uh, in fact, he says the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from a trial or just trial. You don't have to put the, the A in there. The Greek word for trial here is pyrosmos, which could refer to an external trial or it could refer to an internal trial, a temptation. It's The word is translated both trial and temptation in the New Testament. It's the corollary to lead us not into temptation. When Jesus tells us to pray that way, lead us not into temptation, it's pyrosmos. Lead us not into temptation. Lead us not into trial. Lead us not into testing. Whether an external test, such as a trial, or an internal test, such as temptation, God knows how to rescue his people from all of that. And God knows how to... uh, really hold the unrighteous accountable for their actions and to keep them under punishment for the day of judgment. So we can be faithful because we know that God will right all wrongs. He's going to He's going to right all wrongs. He's going to punish all wrongdoing. There will be a day of accountability and God's going to sort it all out and make things right. And we can take people off our hook and leave them on God's hook because God's the one that's going to hold them accountable. That's Peter's point. And and thus we can just endure and be faithful, not having to worry about all that because God knows how to do all of that. Then in verse 10, or at least the first half of verse 10 that we're going to look at in this recording, Peter emphasizes that this judgment is definitely for people like the false teachers who are plaguing the churches to whom he's writing to. The false teachers that they know are living sensual lives and teaching others to do the same. And so verse 10 continues the thought of verse 9 by saying, Uh, After saying that God knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, verse 10 picks up and says, And especially those who indulge the flesh 
in its corrupt passion and despise authority. Notice the two descriptions uh, that Peter uses here. Those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt passion, or better, its corrupt desire. The word passion is simply the normal word for desire in Greek, epithemia. And it's actually singular here, which suggests that Peter is sort of thinking of like desire in totality, not lowercase d, desires, but just desire. And it's not that desire in itself is bad, it's corrupt desire or polluted desire. That's the problem. And in the New Testament, polluted desire, particularly the polluted desires of the flesh, are consistently viewed as the source of human sin and human wickedness. So, the Lord knows how to judge people who give into that, who indulge that, who seek to satisfy polluted desire. The, the other description he uses here is they despise authority. This is really important for us to pay attention to uh, because we tend to live in an anti-authority age. We don't trust authority. We don't like authority. We live by the motto, no one can tell me what to do. But despising authority is a cause for judgment here. And these false teachers despise authority. That's part of their problem. So, here in the first half of chapter 2, which is really the first half of Peter's attack on the false teachers, Peter points out their sinfulness, and he emphasizes that their judgment is certain, and he encourages the believers that God can and will rescue them. He will rescue the godly. And all of this reminds us that not everyone who claims to speak for God or speak for Jesus really does. Not everyone who says, uh, you know, who claims Jesus and says they know what Jesus is all about really is. Uh, and a key kind of evidence for whether or not um, they are true teachers or false teachers is their lifestyle in total. Do they embody the character of Christ or not? Are they living for the flesh? Or are they pursuing holiness? That's a key indicator. Do they teach the same holiness that Jesus taught or not? Teaching and teachers that are full of greed, who indulge the flesh, who live life for themselves and for whatever feels good, well, they, Peter says, are destined for judgment. They are not people we should listen to. They are people we should make sure we abstain from and walk far away from. We should follow Jesus and people who teach what Jesus taught and embody the way of life that Jesus himself embodied.